0: This week on the show, we cover TrueS becoming a downstream fork with Trident. We have our BSD CAN 2018 recap, part one of two. Uh, Hardened BSD Foundation uh, founding efforts. We tell you a VPN setup with OpenIKD on OpenBSD. Uh, FreeBSD on a System76 Galago Pro laptop. And hardware accelerated rated crypto on Octeons. In this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 250, BSD Can 2018 Recap, recorded on the 13th of June 2018. Hello, I'm host Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. We are back from BSD Can. I'm just a little bit jet lagged. Well, by now, it's just two days since I landed, so um, I'm right back in the show and Alan is with me as well so we should get right into the headlines but before we talk to you all about the cool stuff that happened at BSD cam we have other news from TrueOS uh they're focusing on open uh, on core operating systems of course they're open yes. uh,
1: <laughs> it's funny that they had to add a note to the bump it's like the TrueOS project is not changing its name again uh there already is a <laughs> coreOS and they're pretty cool so um <laughs> uh, But it says, uh, the TrueOS project has some big plans in the works, and we want to take a minute to share those uh, with the community. Many of you uh, have come to know TrueOS as the graphical version of FreeBSD that makes things easy for newcomers to BSD. Today, we're announcing that TrueOS is shifting our focus a bit to becoming a cutting-edge operating system that keeps all the stability that you know and love from ZFS and FreeBSD, while adding additional features to create a fresh, innovative operating system. Our goal is to create a core-centric operating system that is modular, functional, and perfect for do-it-yourselfers and advanced users alike. So, TrueOS will become a downstream fork that will build on FreeBSD by integrating new software technologies like OpenRC and LibreSSL. Work has already begun, uh, which will allow TrueOS to be used as a base platform for other projects, including a JSON-based manifest uh, to make it easier to make your own version of TrueOS. Uh, better integration with Poudrear in the package tools, and much, much more. We're planning on a six-month release cycle to keep development fresh and moving, allowing us to bring you hot new features to ZFS, Beehive, and all the related tools in a timely manner. This makes TrueS the perfect fit uh, to serve as a basis for another, uh, for building other distributions. Uh, so I if you can kind of get the idea where this is going. Uh, Some of you are probably asking yourselves, but what if I want to have a graphical desktop? Don't worry. We're making sure that everyone uh, who knows and loves the legacy desktop version of TrueOS will be able to continue using a FreeBSD-based graphical operating system in the future. For instance, if you want to add KDE, uh, you can just, you know, sudo package install KDE and voila, you have your shiny new desktop. Easy, right? This allows us to get back to our roots and uh, bring a desktop agnostic operating system. If you want to add a new desktop environment, just pick the button that best suits you. Um, We know that some of you uh, will still be looking for an out-of-the-box solution similar to uh, the legacy PCBSD or TrueOS. Uh, So for that, we're happy to announce that Project Trident uh, will take over graphical FreeBSD development going forward. Not much is going to change in that regard, other than the new name. You'll still have your Lumina desktop as a lightweight, feature-rich uh, rich desktop environment, and tons of utilities uh, for the legacy TrueOS toolchain, like SysADM and AppCafe. There will be uh, migration paths available that'll make it easy for you to upgrade to these FreeBSD-based distributions set up on top of TrueOS, like Project Triton or sorry, Project Trident. And GhostBSD will also be switching its base from FreeBSD to the TrueOS uh, manifest system. So they say we look forward to this new uh, chapter for TrueOS and hope it will give uh, that you will give these new editions a spin. Tell us what you think about these changes by leaving us a comment. Don't forget you can ask us questions on our Twitter or as part of our community by joining the TrueOS forums, where uh, when they go live in about a week. Uh, thank you for being a loyal fan of TrueOS.
0: Okay, so and they have a uh, an FAQ here, so we could read well, this we'll get back to and that forth in a second. Um, yeah. But so basically, what's
1: happening is
0: TrueOS is
1: kind of reverting back to what TrueOS was before uh, PCBASD renamed itself to TrueOS, which is the base operating system that is under uh, FreeNAS and TrueNAS. Uh, And so IX will get back to focusing on building the operating system uh, and Chris uh, and the other uh, TrueOS developers will get back to focusing on building the core of the operating system and the good bits. And then what they've done is built a system to make it very easy to make the kind of distributions of uh, TrueOS on top of it by just specifying, you know, I want TrueOS, but with this desktop and these packages and this look to it. And then you click a couple of buttons and it will make uh, uh, that distribution for you. Uh, and so GhostBSD, one of the GNOME-based desktops of FreeBSD is going to switch to using that platform because it'll make it easier for them to maintain uh, their version. And then Trident will be the basically the continuation of what was PCBSD. You get your Lumina based desktop, and you know Chris has already mentioned that he might, uh, as an example, just throw together uh, a KDE five based uh, distro of TrueOS.
0: Ah, uh, yes, that's this Chris uh, love for the KDE environment.
1: Yeah. Uh, so now over at uh, so TrueOS will remain the project that IX uh, pays people to work on, and uh, project Trident uh, will be the now community-driven process of actually building, um, the doing the integration of a desktop environment on top of TrueOS. So now we have uh, their shiny new logo uh, and uh, an FAQ that tells us a little bit about what it is. So I guess if you wanna read the questions, I can read the answers. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the first question is, why did you pick the name Project Trident? Uh, Well, we were looking for a name that was unique yet would still uh, relate to the BSD community since Beastie, the FreeBSD mascot, is always pictured with his trusty trident, you know, that yellow pitchfork-looking thing. Uh, That's a trident. A pitchfork has four tines, and uh, is different. A trident is, you know, like... uh, What's the god of the sea named? Uh, Poseidon? Poseidon, Poseidon, yes. It's trident like that. Uh, So they felt that would be a great name.
0: Okay. And the next is, where can users go for technical support? Uh, At the moment, uh, Project Trident will continue sharing the TrueOS
1: community forums and the Telegram channels. Uh, We're currently evaluating dedicated options for support channels in the future, as some of those things, uh, you know, Project Trident will continue to add things on top of TrueOS that don't exist in TrueOS, and so it might not make sense to share the support infrastructure. Mm Mm-hmm. But and we don't the next want to leave one, people with a, you know, an empty forum if they have questions, so for now it will continue using the TrueOS stuff.
0: Yeah, and Then it will branch off at a certain point. Uh, can I help contribute to the project? Uh, we will always be
1: uh, looking for developers who want to join the project. If you're not a developer, you can still help. As a community project, we will be more and more reliant on contributions from the community in the form of how-to guides and other user-centric documentation and support. And You know, some of this stuff, you don't really need to be a C developer uh, to help put together manifests and uh, the stuff you need to do to make uh, a successful desktop operating system. Um, You know, there's a a lot of stuff that you can help with as a non-developer.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, How is the project supported financially? Uh,
1: project Trident is sponsored by the community, both through individual and corporate donations. iX Systems has stepped up as the first enterprise level sponsor of the project uh, and has been instrumental in getting Project Trident up and running. Uh, so please visit the sponsor page to see all the current sponsors and to donate.
0: Mm-hmm. And how can I help support the project financially?
1: Uh, there are several methods that exist uh, from. For one-time and recurring donations, PayPal is the easiest one, Uh, and they're also looking at limited-time swag options like t-shirts, campaigns that will be coming later in the year. We're also looking into alternative methods of support, so please visit the sponsor page to see all the currently supported
0: methods. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, Will there be any transparency of the financial donations and expenditures?
1: I say, yes, it will be totally open with how much money comes into the project and what it gets spent on. Due to concerns of privacy, we will not identify the individual donors and their donation amounts unless they specifically request to be identified. Uh, we will release a monthly overview of, uh, you know, income and expenses ledger uh, so that the community can see where the money uh, donated to the project is being spent.
0: mm-hmm Yeah, so uh, the relationships with TrueOS are also uh, being discussed or questioned Uh, after. Project Trident uh,
1: does have a very close tie to the TrueOS project, since most of its original Project Trident developers uh, were once part of the TrueOS project before it became a distribution platform. For users of the TrueOS desktop, we have some additional question and answers below. Mm.
0: Uh, do we need to be at a certain TrueOS install level or release to upgrade? Uh, as long as you have a TrueOS system
1: that has been updated to at least the twenty eighteen oh three release, you should be able to just perform a regular system update to automatically be upgraded to Project Trident.
0: Okay. And which members moved from TrueOS to the Project Trident? Uh,
1: Project Trident is being led by prior members of the TrueOS de- uh, desktop team. Uh, Since the focus is on the desktop, uh, the people working on underlying OS stay with TrueOS, but the desktop people move over to Trident. So that's uh, Ken Moore, who developed Lumina, uh, and JT, who's also the producer of the show here. Uh, And as well as Tim Moore, who will move over to Trident to work on documentation to make sure that uh, you always know how to do everything. Uh, And Rod uh, will do community and support work uh, for Trident. Uh, and since Project Trident is a community-first project, we look forward to growing the team uh, with community members.
0: Mm, excellent. All right. That's about uh, Trident. And, of course, we'll let you know if there are future developments in that space.
1: Yep. Uh, and you know, it'll be interesting to see what other uh, spins of TrueOS come out of that now that it'll be that much easier to build one.
0: Yeah, what kind of downstream things will develop upon that? Or there's a super nice desktop um, uh, alternative to KDE developing. Whatever it is, we'll see. Yeah.
1: So, uh, this week's episode of BSD Now and basically all the previous news story there uh, is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com and check out the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, they were also at the conference that we're going to talk about in a little while, BSD can They Mm -hmm. were sponsors and had a table there uh, showing up their new M-series. That was kind of interesting. And they
1: also sponsored uh, the social event at the end of the conference.
0: Oh, yes. Thanks for that. So they're also um, bringing a lot of people to the conference and sponsoring those. Um, I think they had a record attendance this year of 20 people. So all over... From documentation, development, of course. And uh, yeah, that was a good uh, outcome.
1: Indeed. So we could um, see if you need hardware, you should head over to iX systems and let them know what it is you're trying to do with open source. And they'll help you build the best server to do the job.
0: Yeah. Whether it's a small server for for your backup needs in the office or uh, in a small company, that's probably something that a Freenas Mini or Freenas Mini XL up to the big server rack for your, let's say, big data needs or whatever kind of data you want to store. Mm -hmm. Or you want to have a good combination of CPU and memory, just give them a call and they will tell you exactly for your use case what's the best machine they can build for you.
1: Yes, uh, you know, it's very valuable to talk to a bunch of the developers that are employed at IX to making sure that ZFS is the best that it can be on FreeBSD.
0: Yes, they know um, how the system component works together, which drivers are available and how uh, much performance they can deliver. So that's the exact thing you want to know from your uh, hardware vendor. And most hardware vendors just don't know about FreeBSD at all. So IX Systems yeah, uses let alone Know exactly which
1: hardware you want
0: with free, uh, with ZFS
1: and so on. So, yeah. we have a special treat. Before we get to our trip reports from BSD CAN, we have one from uh, IX employee Michael Dexter. Uh, we have a, a special advanced leaked copy. Uh, this will be up on their website later today, but we have this advanced copy. Uh, so, it says as a recap of BSD CAN 2018, the 15th annual BSD CAN took place uh, during the first week of June and saw record attendance uh, by users and developers from around the world, including many many members of the iX Systems team. It was an honor to sponsor the Saturday night social event and to be part of North America's largest BSD conference. BSD Can is special uh, for starting at connecting airports around the world and ending informally at cafes around the Byward Market in Ottawa. Celebrating its 15th year, BSD Can 2018... uh, tied with the previous BSD can 2015, uh, for a record number of attendees. I guess that just spoiled the joke we were going to make later. Yes. This Uh. year's BSD can was the biggest BSD can ever beating the previous BSD can by zero people. (laughs) Tying the record. (laughs) Um, This made for a busy, uh, but never crowded event where the hallway track was always just as important as the session tracks. Um, Choosing which concurrent session uh, to miss and deciding where to eat is probably the two most difficult decisions that any BSD can attendee faces. Because uh, yes, uh, even during lunch, we had uh, boffs going on. Uh, so you got you got your lunch and then it was like, which of the four topics would I like to listen to and talk about while I eat my lunch?
0: Yeah, that's uh, difficult. So mm-hmm. yeah, especially at this, this year's conference.
1: Yeah. So the first social event of, uh, BSD can traditionally now is the gop off, uh, birds of a feather session where everybody meets up at, uh, the Royal Oak before the conference starts and, uh, celebrates, uh, with Groff and, you know, get reintroduced to all of our friends that we maybe haven't seen for a whole year. You know, many weary travelers uh, can unwind and catch up with the colleagues and really have the pleasure of seeing in person, uh, then mildly rested and acclimated, attendees <laughs> and speakers then start a mix of tutorials and developer summits. And, you know, last minute presentation preparation for some people. Who would do that? I don't know what they're talking Not about. Not me this time. I was, I was prepared. It Helped that I gave a slightly shorter version of the same talk at a different conference a, a couple of weeks before. <laughs> but the FreeBSD Dev Summit featured highly... Uh, constructive discussions about proposed features like the OpenRC init system and uh, packaging the base system, which had been undergoing evaluation in TrueOS for consideration for inclusion in FreeBSD. Both projects ranked uh, remarkably well for balanced technological innovation without violating the principle of least astonishment. You know, we don't want to surprise the user when they upgrade that something they depended on isn't there anymore or something like that. And then the tutorials provided hands-on instructions for all kinds of things, including BGP, Ansible, PF, and LibreSSL. And then I have lots more there. If you want to read uh, Michael's recap of BSDCAN, uh, go over to ixsystems.com blog and check it out. Mm-hmm. I'm reliably informed that tomorrow there will be a second trip report from somebody else that attended as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, so... That's uh, that's going to happen in the next weeks. We will flood you with BSDCAN recaps and uh, trip reports.
1: Yeah. So moving on to our recap of uh, BSDCAN.
0: Yeah. So yeah, it's been a great conference and it started for me on the Friday before, sort of the 1st mm-hmm. the of June. I went there a little bit earlier to, um, you know, get there a bit earlier, do a bit of uh, sightseeing, we went to Montreal over the Sunday, Saturday, no, it was Sunday, Monday, um, and do a little bit of sightseeing there uh, until the rain started falling down on Monday, Uh, but the the, the week, the day before was actually quite hot and I got a little bit of sunburn, so, yeah, in Canada, mind you, so... (laughs) But it was great. Uh, um, I got there with the Z ZRepl developer, uh, Christian Schwartz, who was there for his first time in Canada and at the conference, okay. of course. And, yeah, that was a great time. I spoke in the first few days a lot of German for whatever reason and then <laughs> had to switch over to English. Um, uh, yeah, you two should have switched earlier and, and got yeah. your
1: English all exercised.
0: <laughs> all mixed up. <laughs> exercised. Yep. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, I,
1: we came up on the <laughs> Sunday uh, and then You know, by the time we got there, it was nighttime, so we didn't do much. But on Monday, uh, we met up with uh, Michael and Liz Lucas and had breakfast. Uh, And then we met up with uh, Adam, who organizes the hotels for all the attendees, uh, or all the speakers anyway, uh, and his wife. And the bunch of us went to the Science and Technology Museum. Uh, We got a little bit of a special behind the scenes version of the tour uh, because Adam had worked on setting up a lot of the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure uh, for the museum itself. And so we kind of got a behind the scenes in addition to seeing, you know, the people that worked there's favorite versions of different exhibits. Also just uh, understanding some of the IT stuff that was going on behind the scenes and, you know, how they're using the ticket system to track problems with the displays and Uh, you know, how they used computers to control the lights and and some of the interactive exhibits. Uh, And that was cool. And then uh, once we broke off from that, we watched a pyrotechnics display uh, and then went to the Lego exhibit, uh, which uh, I think there are some pictures of coming up shortly. Okay. So that was Monday. uh, And then Tuesday, I went to the Canadian War Museum uh, didn't get to see all of it. I was on a, a bit short for time because I had a meet up later in the day. Uh, but I went through uh, prehistory to 1885 and then uh, 1885 through the end of World War I and then a little bit of World War II. And then I went to the big hangar and just
0: uh, ogled vehicles for an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've yet to go to that uh, museum. It's still on my to visit list.
1: Yes, uh, well, if you want to see a collection of tanks from World War One and Two, all the way up to modern stuff, uh, it's definitely worth a look. There's also we had know, the... combat snowmobiles and.
0: <laughs> Ooh uh, yeah, well, we did the the, the Ottawa um, tour that starts at the uh, War Memorial that pretty much drive around and hop on, hop, hop off tour uh, with Christian who hasn't seen it before. It was very windy on that day, but um, that was still a cool tour. So we yeah. got a c- When we were driving city. up on Sunday,
1: the rain was really heavy. And then Monday, it rained a while while we were inside the, the museum, but that didn't really deter us too much.
0: Yeah, and then on Tuesday evening... Uh, as we already mentioned in Dexter's trip report, the goat buff started at the Royal Oak Pub. Uh, so where people had a chance to meet and greet and, uh, you know, recap every uh, last uh, event they went to and, you know, all the happenings in the BSD world. Unfortunately, I could not attend that one because the Tuesday uh, had an all-day FreeBSD Foundation meeting. That's our annual board meeting. We have to, you know, elect uh, the, the usual uh, members again, you know, the president, the vice president, the secretary and treasurer. And um, also, you know, in the evening, also had, after a little dinner, uh, a journal editorial board meeting to determine what kind of future issues the Free FreeBSD journal will have.
1: Well, there's a picture in the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it's... Yeah, so it's I'm uh, showing off cool. some
1: pictures from the goat buff here. You see lots of people meeting up. Wow. We get there a little bit late but not too late and I got to talk to Matt Ahrens and Sarah Hartsey about some uh, work I had done on ZFS since the last time I spoke to them at uh, the ZFS user conference, uh, about a month and a bit before, um, or two months before I guess, uh. and uh, talk to a bunch of other people. It was you know, nice to get to catch up with people that I haven't
0: seen for a while. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so that um, that went on for a while, I guess. Um, some people just uh, couldn't finish and uh, well, they're a bit tired on the next day, uh, which uh, started the actual, so these are the two days of tutorials for the conference, but in parallel, there's the free, uh, FreeBSD Dev Summit happening, so that's also two days, mm-hmm. and uh, Gordon Tetlow organized uh, the Dev Summit with a bunch of help from others, and he opened the Dev Summit, welcome everyone, and then uh, let Deb Goodkin take the stage to talk about the FreeBSD Foundation uh, efforts in, uh, you know, education and uh, development and some other things like uh, how many new people we get on board. So Lee Wen is now working working at the foundation to assist in quality assurance. Uh, so Jenkins, uh, continuous integration, continuous de- deployment that he already did, but now in a more uh, formal role, focusing on, on that whole yeah. He gets to work
1: on it full time instead of just as a volunteer.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that should get things um, uh, started more quickly or more um, consistently, having someone who can take care of that, like we have for Glenn Barber with the release engineering team. And also, Gordon Tetlow itself uh, had a part has a part time contract at the moment uh, to help sec team as their secretary. So these two positions took at least. Uh, half a year, or maybe one year to set up with all you know, the behind the scenes talk and you know, financing and all that. It took a while, but I'm happy that we got both of them and um, now they can do their work um, in their respective areas. So that was her update, um, and a couple of questions were asked, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then it was the core team uh, session uh, where Ellen and I were also uh, on the stage with the other core team members who were there. Uh, The only one who wasn't there was George Neville Neal, unfortunately, this year. He couldn't come. Uh, But everyone else, including core secretary, was there. And we gave an overview talk of the things that we um, did in the last two years because you remember there's a core election going on still. I think we have a week left or so.
1: We get the frequent question, you know, what is Core doing about it? So we gave a <laughs> short presentation recapping all the things we've done in the last two years. And, you know, it was a lot more work than it sounded like.
0: Yeah, so we could fill almost an hour. And um mm-hmm. and then we kind of got a bunch of questions from the audience. So generally people are, are interested in the core work and what it entails. And yeah, I think that was a good session overall. Um, yeah, so there was a coffee break because uh, that was around uh, uh, lunchtime almost. No, no, it was uh, 10.30 from the, from the schedule here. Um, after that, we had a release engineering talk um, because people wanted to know or at least we wanted to show that release engineering is important and what kind of role it has in making the release work or get out on time and what kind of efforts are needed to make that um happen in time and in good quality, and uh, Marius presented that. And there were also a couple of questions, or at least... Yes, uh, uh,
1: we also had a uh, somewhat lengthy discussion about um, the code freezes and how we do that, especially for the major versions, Uh, how we're trying to get the rate of churn in in head down uh, so that we can have a stable release, uh, while at the same time trying to balance that with not disrupting the development cycle uh, too much either. Um, it seems like we're going to not make any changes in time for 12, but maybe uh, for next time we will look at having the freezes be a bit shorter. Uh, the other thing that was raised was how we should maybe enforce uh, temporary code freezes if there's too much breakage in the tree, if uh, the rate of churn is causing repeated breakage, and you know uh, the, the Tinderbox system detects that uh, we've not had a successful build in X uh, amount of time uh, that we institute a temporary code freeze until all the breakages are fixed um, before we allow development to continue.
0: Yeah, that's uh, Although important. That's for...
1: maybe more reactive instead of proactive where you know the changes should be. Uh, we should find those breakages before they're committed instead of the other way around.
0: Yeah, yeah that's uh, a good point. but generally having an overview of what release engineering does and how many people are involved is uh, good to see. And talking
1: about the schedule for 12 because that's coming up very soon and we have a lot of work to get done for that.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the afternoon um, was, um, we split up, at least I had to go to my Ansible tutorial in the afternoon which went for pretty much the rest of the afternoon for three hours with a break in between. Uh, So I had roughly 15 people um, most of them beginners, a couple of them a bit more advanced, and we had some good discussions as I presented the, the slides and went through the material. Uh, people uh, always asked questions, and uh, you know there was a little bit of um, back and forth, uh, but also uh, very productive, and I also got a few suggestions uh, for modules or for um, uh, using Factor to get even more facts from a remote operating system. Uh, so that was new to me, and that is the nice thing that you're not only presenting something but you also get uh, something to learn yourself and uh Feedback was overall positive from uh, the people that I talked to, and well, of course, they probably didn't want to tell me uh, bad stuff in my face, um, but but that's okay. Um, and one even asked what I'm going to teach next year, so I have to come up. Um, <laughs> but I have a whole year to think about that. So yeah, that's good to know that people want to see me again. Uh, but you went to a working group, Alan, in that time frame. Yep.
1: Uh, so there were three working or yeah, two working groups going on. Uh, after lunch. Uh, The first was called Clearing Deadwood. It was about uh, clearing up older code in the operating system that's, uh, for example, old drivers or devices that you haven't been able to buy for 10 years that were never popular to begin with, uh, and cleaning those up so as not to haul around the extra technical debt for no reason. Um, So there was uh, some of that. Uh, And then the competing session was Packaging Base, where we talked through uh, some of the problems and limitations we have now. Uh, with that and going forward uh, how to you know try to get that project finished. It's been going on for a couple of years now and oh. uh, isn't quite ready to land. Was um, that
0: more of a hackathon thing or just uh,
1: discussions? The second half after the break was a hackathon which ah. involved more time at the whiteboard with the the important people figuring out what was going on uh, Also during that break uh, is when we had the 25th anniversary cake. Uh, from FreeBSD. And I get the look
0: on Benedict's face that he maybe didn't get any cake. No, wait. That must have been on the second day because I was there uh, oh. when Deb was cutting the cake. Possibly that must have been some
1: the second day, yes. Yeah. My because idea. I
0: couldn't get out of my um, uh, tutorial. During the break to yeah, yeah, so get some cake? I, I did get that cake, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. And uh, then after
1: the break, uh, the second sessions were uh, open OpenRC uh, and explaining that to people and then the uh, the hackathon for packaging base and I think uh, in the other room that was supporting a hackathon we also had a, um, a talk about some of the, uh, the crypto framework in FreeBSD uh, for accelerating uh, things like crypto offload on some of the newer network cards and so on.
0: Yeah so we couldn't be in that those rooms but um. But if someone has been there and wants to report on that, send us in and yes. we'll cover that in the show. Uh, yeah, good, good, I, and I hear good things from the OpenRC group. They, are, um, they had a lot of uh, enthusiastic people in there and they want to make things happen. Let's just say that. Um, I don't see that there are any um, objections that far. They just need to do a bit of work to get that integrated in one way or the other. Um, yeah, that was uh, anything. Oh, of course. Then uh, after that, everyone had a bit of time off to uh, unwind. But then there was a um, a dinner for developers in the uh, uh, Henderson residence. We couldn't have the hackathon or the hacker lounge in the um, U90 residence this year. So although the room was pretty much empty the whole time I looked at it, so. I don't know what went on there, but um, that was the Henderson residence that had more uh, tables and space. It's a bit further out from the from the venue, but uh, people were there and um, took the walk there. So that was the dinner with basically pizza. I didn't go there for that for one reason. There was some kind of dinner going on. So, <laughs> but when I came back, there were a lot of empty pizza cartons and people were uh, still talking. So <laughs> that uh, seems to have been gone well. And then the next day, June seventh, is the second day of the FreeBSD Dev Summit. Uh, Gordon also opened that one, um, giving a much longer talk, actually, uh, with an insight into the FreeBSD Sec team, uh, which is basically handling all the security in FreeBSD. The security vulnerabilities, you know, uh, security issues they have to to deal with, or yeah, uh, so or, there was talk
1: about uh, some of the different vulnerabilities and how they were handled, uh, and. Um, In particular, the debug uh, vulnerability that came out uh, that was coordinated by Microsoft and how well that went, and using that as a case study and in general trying to have more uh, vulnerabilities handled that way than some of the other ways they've uh, been handled over time. Uh, And there was a bit of talk about how still a bit too much of the vulnerability management stuff is, you know, there's not... Uh, conscious selection of who gets included in whatever it's just like oh I happen to know a guy at that project so we can reach out to that person uh, and trying to formalize some of that and, and just uh, hoping to have uh, more of these uh, disclosures handled the way uh, that the the most successful ones have been handled
0: mm. and he also okay. described how the process works um, f- that that takes place when there's a security vulnerability uh, by explaining it uh, from an old advisory that they did so um, a while back so that they, people can see what, what's involved in just getting the right people and also writing up the whole text about the advisories and all these things. Um, that's a lot of work.
1: Yep. Um, and then there was also talk about creating a new security architecture team. Um so currently uh, a number of bits of code review or uh you know commits don't go in because they're waiting for review by sec team and the way the current sec team is structured they're basically completely uh set up for the dealing with the vulnerability disclosure stuff uh and not necessarily the right resource to review changes to crypto drivers uh, or the random number generator and so on. So looking at actually creating a separate security architecture team to do code reviews on things like the disc encryption changes, the random number generator, generator changes, changes to the crypto frameworks, uh, crypto offload code, a S code, et cetera. And having a, a separate group for that, that's not gated on approval by sec team, which is busy, you know, in a responsive role dealing with, uh, the vulnerabilities and so on.
0: Yeah, and some of these require really deep knowledge into certain mm-hmm. code bases. And yeah, and that, you know, we
1: there, we can't get a security officer that's going to have deep knowledge of every one of these things. And so, moving the code review part off to a security architecture team probably makes more sense, and hopefully will allow uh, remove some current roadblocks that are in place. Hmm. Uh, And then after the break uh, we had our FreeBSD12 session a bit different than uh, some previous FreeBSD12 sessions in that it was less aspirational and more you know, these are the list of things that we really need to get finished before CodeSlush starts uh, in two months. So, you know. (laughs) And actually making sure each one of these is assigned to a person uh, and uh, Rod Geim's from the release engineering team uh, has taken to uh, took the notes from that and created a set of Bugzilla bugs uh, and set up so the release engineering team can track each of those projects and how it's going uh, and trying to get all those things wrapped up and finished and committed and working and tested uh, by the start of the code slash, uh so that
0: we can uh, have a more high quality release. Yep, that's always... and And also it's like oh, we want to get this feature in, but it's still not finished, so let's keep it out to make it um, not a disappointment for people. And so we put it in 12.1, whatever uh, Well, and be. for some of it, because
1: the ABI is locked well, after 12, and you can't go and change the ABI to add the feature in 12.1, is which shims and placeholders do we need to get into the ABI in 12.0, even if we're not going to use them until 12.1?
0: Yeah. So features are ready when they're ready, uh, but people should still uh, assign to them and work on them to make it uh, uh, happen. So
1: actually, you can see here the release engineering schedule, uh, but you can find that on the FreeBSD.org
0: website. Yeah, the full listing and uh, what people plan to do.
1: Yep. Uh, Then we had lunch, and then we took the group photo, uh, both regular and in 360 version. (laughs) Uh, yep, that was so a new gadget.
0: <laughs> so every people, everyone around the whole camera.
1: Yep, And uh, then and afternoon, then we had the th- uh, two different working groups. The transport group, which is focused on networking and TCP, uh, and the open ZFS group, where we uh, had recaps of what had been going on with... Uh, ZFS since last year, and uh, with some of the features that we have now that you might not have heard about, features that are coming very soon, and then features that are uh, coming down the road. Uh, we also had a talk about um, some changes in the OpenZFS uh, project, and now that a lot of development is happening in Linux first, uh, considering changing FreeBSD's um, kind of to not necessarily use. Solaris uh, or the open ZFS repo as the source of upstream so much as cherry pick features from any other ZFS implementation uh, and kind of you know doing that the
0: right way. Yep. Yeah. Uh, for me it was a bit uh, just a couple of people talking and the rest of the room was like whoa you're we very deep into the code. Um, but still yes. interesting. Uh,
1: Alexander Moten also had uh some performance graphs uh and and flame graphs looking into some particular performance problems he's seeing with very high speed devices uh and you know using the chance uh to to talk with the other uh people that you know there's there's only a handful of people in the world that are ready to discuss that topic uh <laughs> and if if more than two of them are in the room at once we might as well start uh pulling out <laughs> the flame graphs and figuring out what's going on.
0: <laughs> yep. So I don't know whether uh, that. Then,
1: <laughs> yep, uh, that's that's making progress, and uh, you know, uh, I also raised a couple of questions I had, and and got some ideas on how we're going to deal with some of that stuff.
0: Mm. And Matt Aarons was always great to answer those, and he has this, you know, the relaxedness and still the technical depth to to answer all this uh, in the detail it requires.
1: Yep, uh, and then. The second half of the afternoon, uh, the transport group continued uh, their work and we had a boot code working group uh, where we talked about a number of different things, including um, trying to commonize some of the boot code, some of the changes we made recently, uh, the Lua versus Forth stuff, and also um, trying to finish the Gelly stuff. Uh, There are now actually two separate projects on that. Uh, The one by Ian Lepore will actually extend... It uh, does a lot of very important cleanup on my original legacy implementation of Geli uh, and after that cleanup is able to extend it to work on architectures other than x86 uh, so that you would be able to boot ARM64 servers from encrypted ZFS root um, yeah. and so on and that actually partway extends it into the EFI stuff and then uh, also just having Eric McCorkle who's done the work to get uh, EFI Gelly boot uh, into the freebsd uh, in the same room as, as as some of the other people so we can get that deconflicted and committed as well uh, so it's very good to have just those people in one room for an hour uh, which is the reason why we have these dev summits
0: mm-hmm. yep it's so because people- we all
1: our friends and like to hang out, it's just so we actually can accomplish more in an hour in a room together than we can uh, with sometimes much more time over email.
0: Yeah, you that's... Know, there's um, not much uh,
1: that's more valuable than an actual in- in-person interaction.
0: Yeah, indeed, so they just go in the corner or have a hallway track a little bit uh, besides the, the normal track and then things happen. Yes, that's uh, at least... Uh, oh, we have a couple of Ix systems photos from BSD-CAN as well, but of course this is just the Dev Summit and the tutorials of the first two days.
1: Yes, uh, but we've already kind of gone too long on that, uh, so we will pick up and talk about the main days of the conference. Uh, well, next week, <laughs> you're going to have to yep. wait. <laughs> we covered like the first five days, uh, you know, the many days of pre-conference and the first two days of the conference. Uh, getting deeper into the conference, you're going to have to wait for next
0: week, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, that will require a whole uh, extra show for coverage. Yeah,
1: but uh, do check out all the pictures. Um, the first set from Olivier Robert, uh has many of the pictures annotated so that you can actually put names to the faces. Uh, and uh, there's some ever going on to actually attach names to the rest of the people as well uh, as we try to get, uh, you know, you'll be able to tell who's who, which is uh, something that's often been requested.
0: Yeah, for people who have never been there and just looking at the picture, who
1: what is Yeah, that? In particular, it's like, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time working with so-and-so, but I've yet to actually find out what they look like. <laughs> really yeah, that's very helpful. To the face, uh, and so on.
0: So, time for the news roundup this week. We have the June Harden BSD Foundation update. So, this is over at the HardenBSD website, of course, hardenbsd.org. And they write, uh, or Sean Webb writes, who was also at the conference, uh, we at HardenBSD are working towards starting a 501c3, not-for-profit organization in the United States. Setting up this organization will allow future donations to, the, to be tax-deductible. And we've made progress and would like to share with you the current state of affairs. We have identified, in, uh, sent invitations out, and received acceptance letters from six people who will give uh, or who will serve on the bST Foundation board of directors. So we have you have to have a, a couple of people on a board of directors. That's just a requirement by law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find their bios below in the latter half, in the latter half of the twenty eighteen uh, of June, in the beginning half of July twenty eighteen. They will have. Uh, their meeting for the first time as a board and formally begin the process of creating the documentation needed to submit to the local, state, and federal tax services so that this is officially registered and um, then you can get the tax donation.
1: Yeah, there's uh, uh, quite a bit of setup uh, in in creating a not-for-profit. I remember you know Justin did a lot of work to get the FreeBSD Foundation to be. Yeah,
0: a- it's not something you would do on an, on a rainy afternoon. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know it also requires um, some waiting time and you know fees and. Yeah, some legal counsel, but certainly it's it's uh, doable, and you just need to have to drive for it. Uh, so here's a brief introduction to those who will serve on the board. Uh, the first one is W. Dean Freeman as an advisor. Uh, Dean has 10 years of professional experience with deploying and security Unix and networking systems, including sessions assessing sorry assessing systems security for government certification and assessing the efficacy. Of um, security products, he has introduced, uh, well, was introduced to Unix via FreeBSD 2.2.8. Wow! On an ISP shell account as a teenager, formerly uh, he has, uh, he was on the uh, Snort port maintaining team for FreeBSD, while working in the Sourcefire VRT, and has contributed entropy-related patches to the FreeBSD and HardenBSD projects. A topic on which he presented at VBSDCon
1: 2017. Yep, Dean is a very smart person.
0: Yep. So um, then second is Ben Lamonica as an advisor too. Uh, Ben is a senior technology manager of software engineering at Morningstar Incorporated and has been developing software for over 15 years in a variety of languages. He advocates open source software and enjoys tinkering with electronics and home automation. Uh, The next person is uh, George Saylor, uh, also an advisor. Uh, George is a technical director at G2. Uh, Mr. Saylor has over 28 years of information systems and security experience in a broad range of disciplines. His core focus areas are automation and standards in the event correlation space, as well as penetration and exploitation of computer systems. Mr. Saylor uh, was also co-founder of the OpenSCAP project. Uh, Number four on the board will be Virginia Suidan as an accountant and general administrator. Accountant and general administrator for the Hardin BSD Foundation. She has worked with Sean Webb for tax and accounting purposes for over six years. And then there's Sean Webb himself, himself of course, uh, as a director, uh, the co-founder of HardBSD and all-around infosec Monk. Uh, he has worked and played in the InfoSec industry, doing both offensive and defensive research for around 15 years. Uh, loves open source technologies and likes to frustrate the bad guys. And number six, as uh, Ben Welch, as an advisor, uh, Ben is currently a security engineer at G2. He graduated from Pennsylvania College of Technology with a Bachelor's of Information assurance and Security. Uh, ben likes long walks, uh, beaches, candlelight dinners, and attending various conferences like B-Sides and Shmoocon. Okay, that's uh, news from the Heart and BSD project.
1: So next up, we have uh,
0: a how-to on creating your own VPN
1: using the OpenIKED in OpenBSD.
0: Ah, well, VPN is always good to have, mm-hmm. especially so when you have the conference <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> or just the crappy uh, home Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: remote connectivity to your home network is something I think a lot of people find desirable. Over the years, I've established an SSH tunnel and used it for socks proxy and things like that, uh, sending my traffic through that. It's a nice solution for a poor man's VPN. Uh, But it can be a bit clunky, and it's not great having to expose SSH to the world, uh, even if it makes you lock everything down. Uh, So I set out the other day to finally do it properly. I came across a post by Gordon Turner uh, on how to run a VPN endpoint for iOS and macOS from OpenBSD 6.2. While this is exactly what I was looking for, it outlined how to set up an L2TP VPN. Really, I wanted IPSec. Uh, so IKEV2 for performance and security reasons, and you know, won't elaborate. But you can find out more if you care. Uh, the client systems I've been using uh, all have native support for IKEV2, including iOS, macOS, and other BSD systems. But I couldn't find any tutorials on this uh, kind of specific version of it. Hmm. Uh, so uh, decided to attack the problem. Uh, This guide will walk you through the setup of an Ikev2 VPN using OpenIkeD on OpenBSD. It will detail a road warrior configuration, uh, so you know connecting your laptop back to your home when you're on the road, uh, and use pre-shared keys for authentication. I'm sure it can be easily adapted to work with other platforms that OpenIkeD is available on, but keep in mind that these instructions are for OpenBSD. Uh, So for your server, uh, As with all my home infrastructures, I crafted the setup uh, declaratively. So I had the deployment of a VM set up with Terraform, uh, developed on a private Triton cluster, and wrote the configuration in Ansible and then tied them together using uh, the Terraform provisioner Ansible module. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I love Ansible is that its syntax is very simplistic yet expressive. As such, I feel it very well fits into explaining these steps Uh, as snippets of a playbook.
0: Okay, Uh, makes sense,
1: yeah. First bit is setting up the sysctl parameters. First off, we need to alter the kernel state so it's fit to manage VPN traffic. Naturally, parameters we're going to uh, be setting are in the internet space in uh, sysctl. So we set um, net.inet.ip.forwarding so that traffic in the one interface will be forwarded out the other so that you'll actually be able to pass traffic around. Enable the ESP and AH so that uh, you can set up IPsec and also enable IP comp. Okay. And then he translates that Ansible playbook into the raw commands uh, in case you're new to Ansible. Yep. That's the... uh, then he also creates the naughty list, a list of uh, <laughs> networks that you're going to block automatically uh, and shows how that's set up. But then we set the host name, uh, configure the IP address on the interface. So now we're going to run an IPsec and have an encapsulation interface and set its IP address and NetMask and so on. Uh, then we can configure the firewall, make it a pf.conf, and that basically uh, blocks the bad guys and allows our IPSec traffic through and reloads PF once it's uh, the file's in place. Then we need to configure the ikd service. Uh, so we set up our ikd.conf and set our pre-shared key. So we configure who's allowed uh, what through the VPN daemon. And then we start the Ike service, and we're pretty much good to go. Then we just have to uh, configure the machine to actually proxy traffic around. And uh, now we have our server. And then it walks through the client configuration for setting up the VPN on iOS, so for your uh, iPhone or whatever. And then it has uh, how to do it on your Mac OS, how to deal with uh, troubleshooting you might run into, uh, how to make sure you know your network connectivity is working right, uh, how to watch the traffic as it goes back and forth, etc. So should be everything great. you need uh, to get your VPN going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. But you know, sometimes your connection at home isn't all that fast. Uh, and you want somewhere you could VPN to that's got a little bit of speed under the belt. So, head over to digitalocean.com and check them out, where you can stand up uh, a BSD VM uh, with a gig of memory and a terabyte of internet traffic uh, for just $5 a month. So, you splat that same VPN configuration down on there, uh, and now you can get out from behind the hotel's Wi-Fi or whatever onto something (laughs) faster. Plus... Because with DigitalOcean, you get to pick locations, whether you want uh, San Francisco, Toronto, New York, London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Bangalore, or Singapore, you can always have your VPN endpoint be not that far away from the hotel, uh, meaning it'll be a bit faster.
0: Yeah, so you don't have to wait until the packets arrive around the world. Yeah, so that gives you. You
1: could also have your house connect out to the VPN on the internet. And now when you connect it to that uh, server, um, you'll also be able to reach into your house, um, but you didn't have to, you know, if your house doesn't, say, have a static IP address uh, and you're not going to be able to, you know, find it when you're off in a hotel in some foreign land or whatever, having your house <laughs> dial out to the static v- uh, VPN server and your laptop dial out allow you to kind of not have to deal with Opening up ports or something and knowing the IP address of your home when you're off, you know, gallivanting at a conference. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or for the mayor, for the more stay at home folks or just want to run servers, they can also run those on the DigitalOcean droplets, like uh, the one click apps that give you on the spot a MongoDB cluster or MongoDB server at least. Or if you want to run a WordPress blog or um, just a MySQL server, That's already available. So you only have to select it and then it will be instantiated for you within seconds.
1: Yeah. Or in my case, on Monday, it was like, oh, look, I have this new thing that needs to be separate from all my previous things and it needs a mail server (laughs) and I need it ASAP. Uh, Yeah. You know, 45 seconds of clicking around on the uh, DigitalOcean website and boom, I had a brand new FreeBSD instance running. package install, postfix, devcot, open DKIM, uh, et cetera, and spam, D, I guess, uh, spam assassin, then I had a mail server up
0: and running, uh, which was really nice to have. Oh, and did you have to share that mail server with other people? Like yeah. with the team management? Uh, yes,
1: and I also uh, invited other people to the team Set up in DigitalOcean so that if I'm not available, other people will be able to log into the account and uh, you know restart that VM or upgrade it or manage it or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's cool because only one person, you can configure it in a way that one person sees the bill, the other people uh, are only doing the management parts, so you can separate yes, or, it still.
1: You know, you can even go further than that and designate uh, a person, other people, you, know, you have your account owner and then you have the people that uh, have access to the billing, and then you have the people that only have access to
0: the droplets. Yep. Or things like load balancers and floating IPs and block storage. It's all available in DigitalOcean for you to use. Yeah. Uh, I
1: predict block storage in our future. There. so
0: Yeah, it, it's coming. Uh, and well, no, if just, you want uh, to try it out. That
1: particular VM I set up on Monday is likely going to need it soon. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and the nice thing about DigitalOcean it can grow with demand. So if your box is too small or doesn't have the right performance anymore then just size up and give it a little bit more CPUs or more memory. So that's all happening and easy to do in DigitalOcean. Yep.
1: And they made it even easier with their new flexible size droplets uh, where you you can uh, pick between Uh, three different sizes for the same price. And they made the storage the same so you can switch back and forth between these just by restarting the droplet. It's super easy. Yep. So So, head over to digitalocean.com and sign up. If you've not signed up before, go to do as in co slash BSD now and you'll get a $100 credit to play with in your account. It's great. Uh, That expires after 60 days. Um, Or if you already have an account, uh, you can use the coupon code FreeBSD now, and they will give you a $10 credit that does not expire.
0: Yep. Uh, if you'd use up the $10 um, for testing, that's that's great. Or you just run it for, yeah, a couple of times with a very small uh, droplet. So no matter how you use it, uh, it's a good way to get started in trying out DigitalOcean.
1: Yes, and when it starts at $5 a month, it can't get much cheaper than that.
0: Yeah, so that gives you a good uh, amount of time to, to try out uh, how, it's, how it works for you.
1: All right, right. Um, moving on. Now we have a blog post about running FreeBSD on the System76 Galago Pro.
0: Yeah, for the people who are still looking for a new laptop, this might be a good alternative because most yeah. of the uh, stuff seems is, to be supported.
1: Yeah, uh, also this is the one that Colin Percival has and he's spent quite a bit of effort uh, making it better. On FreeBSD. Hey oh, all, uh, it's been a while since I last posted, but I thought I would hammer something out. Uh, my recent uh, purchase was a System 76 Galago Pro. I thought, after uh, playing with the Pop OS that uh, System 76 has developed a bit, that the uh, is there any reason I couldn't get BSD going on this thing? Turns out the answer is no. No, there isn't, and it works pretty decently. Uh, so to get some accounting stuff out of the way. I test this on a, on FreeBSD Head and on 11.1 and found that as of uh, May 10th, 2018, Head is a fast-moving target, so uh, some of this is only bound to get even better. So the hardware is uh, it's a Core i5, 8th generation, has the Intel Ultra HD Graphics 620, 16 gigs of RAM, uh, and a uh, Realtek 4, uh, 84 11B uh, card reader, uh, Realtek 8111 gigabit ethernet adapter, uh, Intel HD audio, and the Samsung 960 Pro NVMe SSD. Uh, So he says the caveats, uh, there are a few things I can't uh, seem to make work straight out of the box, and that's the SD card reader, uh, the backlight, and the audio can be a bit finicky. Also the trackpad doesn't respond to two finger scrolling, they've updated the FreeBSD laptop wiki, uh, and there are a few edits that need to be made still, uh, but there is a bug where I can't, uh, create an account for that right now. Might need to reach out, uh, once we get the wiki fixed there. Hmm. So, looking at graphics, uh, the boot menu itself, um, sets itself to what looks like, uh, 1024 by 768 in the middle of the screen. I think it might actually be 800 by 600. Um, uh, but as soon as, uh, the kernel starts, the text console goes to the full uh, 3200 by 1800 resolution, and the text mm. is ultra small. I remember helping Colin fix that in the airport lounge on the way home from BSD Cambridge last year. Um, <laughs> we changed the font or something to make the text four times bigger, and then it was readable. <laughs> okay. Uh, but once you get into X Windows, it requires the DRM Kmod next. Or I think it's DRM next Kmod uh, package, uh, which provides the latest Intel graphics drivers. Uh, once installed, uh, follow the directions from the package, and it works with almost no fuss. I have it running on X with full Intel acceleration and had it running at its full 1200 by 1800 resolution. To scale that down, uh, they used uh, XRR and set the scale to uh, 50%. Uh, which blows it up roughly 200% and makes it much easier to see on your tiny laptop screen.
0: Hmm. I learned at BSD Canada there's a program called AutoX R&R that tries to do all these things manually or uh, automatically, of course. Um, But it's not in ports, so I need uh,
1: to... I use one called AR&R. Yeah? It is in ports, and it gives you a nice little dialogue, and you can drag the screens back and forth and set them up how you want. And that's how oh. I've uh, made my laptop work uh, with every projector I've
0: ever plugged it into, with minimal fuss. Oh, well, check this out. Maybe it's that the uh, the one I was. I it might mean.
1: actually be the same one. That's maybe what the A and A R and R stands for. Little but abbreviation. It's little one called A R and R because I got a slight giggle out of watching uh, Colin Percival and Rod Grimes rocking through the. XR and our man page trying to find the right switches to configure their screen, when I just went click, click, click. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know the tool. Uh, yep. Yeah. So then uh, for wireless, that laptop has an Intel 8265, same as what's in my X270. So you just uh, load the IWM driver and you're good to go. Uh, battery, he says... It seems to be getting about five hours out of the battery, but everything reports out of the box as expected. I could get more by throttling the CPU down speed-wise. Uh, this is where I'm lucky with the X270. I'm getting about twelve hours of battery life under FreeBSD. Um, part of that is the particular model of processor I have it has this system called up-down TDP, where based on the clock speed, it changes not just uh, kind of the draw the of the processor, but also it's uh, thermal frequency. So if you're running it at, I think, under a gigahertz, it drops down to being a 7-watt processor instead of its default 15 watts, uh, which means you can get even more battery life. And once you go over 2 gigahertz, I think is the the mark, uh, it actually kicks up to be a 25-watt processor. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can burn through that battery very quickly if you want to build world really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> or yep. you know, if it's plugged in, you can k- kick it up a notch.
0: Yeah, and on the other times uh, you but, slow down. You know,
1: just out of the box, without having done anything to try to save battery, uh, I'm getting like 12 hours of battery out of it, so I'm very happy. Okay, that's a decent amount of uh Yes, uh, I think this juice. is in particular why George uh, returned his is GoPro and went for the X270 was just the battery life. Uh, but Colin's kept his and is quite happy with it as well. Uh, I'll have to ask Colin what he's how he's doing for battery life and maybe he found a couple of the right switches to make the battery last a bit longer. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the CPU might have that same up-down TDP thing and just uh, setting that correctly could make, uh, you know, 15 watts versus 25 watts. This makes a very big difference uh, in how long the battery is going to last if it provides, you know, 60 watt hours. Um, Yeah, 60 divided by 25 is a lot less than 60 divided by 15. (laughs) and so on Uh, so anyway the conclusions uh, from the blog post is that it's a pretty decent experience while it's not as polished as the ThinkPad there are some positives uh, with a bit of work in polishing in particular that screen resolution is much higher than the uh, 1920 by 1080 you get on uh, the the X230 and the laptop itself is not bad. The keyboard is nice and responsive. Uh, the build quality is pretty solid. My only real complaint is that the trackpad is stiff to click and sort of tiny.
0: let do it! Well, bless you.
1: I imagine the stiffness in the trackpad will go down over time um, and it's stiff specifically so that it doesn't get kind of loose too soon.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, so that's, that's a good point. If people know... Um, or should people should retest their machines after like three or six months to see how everything now works, whether the keys are more stuck yes. now or less stuck.
1: Yep, uh, we definitely hope that uh, the people that are writing these about their new laptops uh, will keep us up to date over time. Uh, anyway, they say uh, they seem to be a bit indifferent uh, to non-Linux OSs running on the gear, but this isn't anything new. I won't have any problems using it and it's enough that uh, when I work uh, through this laptop, but uh, not sure at this stage if my next machine will be another System76 uh, or if, uh, you know, go back to Lenovo or something. Uh, but they say they have impressed me enough to put them in the running when I go for my next portable machine however many years down the road.
0: Okay. Well, People who are in the market for a laptop might want to check this out, especially when they're running FreeBSD. And I guess the other BSDs are also well enough supported to make a decent uh, machine. Okay, uh, next up we have Hardware, we have Alan sneezing of course. Uh, (laughs) We cut that out. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's in my head. Hardware accelerated AES HMAC SHA on Octeons over at undeadly.org. And that means OpenBSD. So we have here um, a commit uh, by a Visa at OpenBSD, interesting name, uh, that's been submitted but disabled for now to use built-in acceleration for on Octeon CPUs, much like AES for x86. And uh, they decided to test uh, TCP bench and IPSec before and after updating and enabling the OctoCrypto aptly named uh, driver. Uh, they didn't capture detailed performance stats from before the update. They had heard uh, someone say that Edge Router lightboxes uh, would only do some 6 megabits per second over IPSecs. So they set up a really simple IPSec conf with IKE ESP, the um, encapsulated security protocol i think yeah Uh, from a to b leading to a policy of uh, esp tunnel from a to b spi dead beef auth uh, hmac sha2 256 enc as So very simple rule here for ipsec so going from one ERL to another, uh, they, <laughs> he collects oxy, or they collect oxy octa, octa octaons. Uh, so they have a bunch to test with and let TCP bench run for a while on that. Uh, the numbers uh, hovered around at seven megabytes per second, megabits per second, sorry, uh, which coincided with uh, what they've heard and also that most of the CPU gets used while doing it. Then, editing the generic kernel on Octeon, removing the uh, comment on the OctoCrypto0 on MainBus0 and Recompiled, booting into the new kernel and got the OctoCrypto line and D-message, which means that the kernel has activated that device, Uh, it was time to rock the IPsec tunnel again. The crypto algorithm and HMAC used by default on IPsec coincides nicely with the list of accelerated functions provided by the driver. So, here's a couple of numbers. uh, before the tunnel traffic numbers. Just one trick, quick look at the sys that uh, which says while the IPsec is running at full steam. So we can see here that uh, there's Crypto, there's SoftNet, there's TCB bench and um, CPUs are roughly 50% uh, used. So that's not too bad. Uh, So this indicates that the load from doing IPsec and generating the traffic is somewhat nicely evened out over the two cores in the edge router. And there's even some CPU left unused, which means uh, they can actually SSH into it and have it usable. Uh, Having it running for almost two days now, moving some 2.1 terabytes over the tunnel. That's that's something uh, more up to our edge here. Uh, Now for the new and improved performance numbers. So this is um, the comparison table. Uh, the TC bench numbers fluctuate up and down a bit, but the output is is nice enough to actually keep tabs on the peak values, uh, peaking to 58.8 megabits per second. Wow, that's it's an a improvement. Big improvement from seven. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, of course. As you can see, the average is lower, but nice anyhow. A and manifold increase performance
1: is 36 to 40 Well,
0: oh, yeah, that's still. <laughs> Acceptable uh, over the 7 megabits per second. Uh, yeah, so that uh, increase of performance is good uh, enough in itself, but also moves the throughput from a speed that would make a poor uh, but cheap gateway to something actually useful and decent for many home network speeds. So the biggest problem after this uh, gets enabled will be uh, that my option to buy cheap used ERLs diminishes.
1: <laughs> yes, he's. <laughs> predicting there'll be a run on these because uh, once he fixes them, they'll be pretty good.
0: Yeah, so remember this is disabled in by default. So you have to actually um, recompile the kernel and make that um, uncommented in the kernel source. So you have the octo-crypto or oct-crypto. And with that, you can start ipsec at a much higher speed on nope. OpenBSD. Uh,
1: and a user on the forum there says, uh, this is incredible, thank you for the work. The question I have is, why is this still disabled? Is there more work to be done? Uh, can't wait to put this on my both of my octions and aiming for some weeks down the line. And another developer chimes in. Must be because it's super unstable. You should just send me all your oction hardware instead. <laughs>
0: yeah, that also works um for testing and stabilization. Uh, well no, I
1: think uh this person's
0: just trying to get uh free octions. Well yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if um People use that, there is much more testing being done, and then they can fix the remaining bugs and stability issues. Time for Beastie Bits this week. We have using FreeBSD text stamps over at etin- etink.com. Interesting domain name. Um, emerging technologies, oh. ah, that explains it. Yes, uh, now, So, if
1: you need to debug a panic on a remote FreeBSD system, but don't want to transfer large core dumps uh, from that remote system to your system to do the debugging and can't afford the downtime caused by dropping into the KDB de- uh, debugger screen, uh, a text dump may be the answer. If you read the text dump man page, uh, it's a kernel dump facility, which allows you to see the crash information in a pure text format. Basically, you script KDB getting the debug information you need when it crashes and writing it to a text file uh, so that when you reboot, you'll have it all there. Uh, it also allows to configure exactly what information is captured by scripting the input. uh, TextDumb, uh has certain requirements. Uh, you must be running at least FreeBSD 7.1. It's been around a while, but you, know, you never know. Uh, and your kernel config must enable the DDB, KDB, and KDB... Unattended uh, features, as well as KDB trace, uh, text dump also relies on the uh, dump dev and save core features. So, because if the kernel is panicking, we can't trust the file system drivers because they might be what panicked. Uh, we write unstructured, well, only slightly structured data to the swap device. Uh, so, use dump dev to declare which device you would like to crash dump to. And then on boot up, save core checks if that device contains a dump and if it does, saves it out to uh, the var crash directory on your real file system uh, before letting swap, you know, get to work using the swap as swap. Uh, both of these uh, are in, need to be enabled in rc.conf. Uh, dump dev can be set to auto and it will just use the first swap device uh, or you can s- Name a device specifically, and actually could choose a not swap device if you wanted. Uh, Do not specify a UFS file system device name or path here. Only swap can be used as the kernel can't rely on the file system during a panic. Also, note that you uh, must either or must ensure that the default target directory, var crash, exists uh, and has enough space. If you want to put it somewhere else, you have to change dumpter in rc.conf.
0: Okay, but other and than that... It
1: goes on and uh, describes how to do it and how to test it, uh, and you should look at that if uh, you're interested in figuring out what's going on. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, next up is a great item for us. Uh, LLVM's LLD is now the default linker for AMD64 on FreeBSD, and we have to thank this person for it. Let's see whether that works. Uh, it's, uh, too dark. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. No, uh, here it goes. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, but so he was not alone. Uh, there were a lot of other people involved, but um, he did the final yep. commit that we're
1: having here. Yep, so Ed writes in the commit message, the migration to LLVM's LLD linker has been uh, in progress for quite some time. About three years ago, uh, Ed opened an upstream LLVM metabug to track all the issues that prevented FreeBSD using LLD as his linker. And about 1.5 years ago, requested the first X run uh, which is an attempt to compile all thirty thousand packages on FreeBSD using the LLD as the system linker, uh, and it found many problems, and that resulted in many fixes to LLD, many fixes to ports, and you know a year and a half of effort to eventually get to the point where it works good. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of uh, a recent-ish commit. Uh, they enabled the LLD bootstrap by default on AMD64 so that would use LLD as the linker to link the kernel and the world when they're built Uh, but still use the GNU-LD as the linker that gets installed so your FreeBSD compiled from source would be set up with LLD but the the LLD linker installed on the system after would be the GNU one so that uh, any packages that Uh, didn't work with LLD yet wouldn't stop compiling. But the vast majority of issues observed when building ports with LLD as the system linker have now been solved, Uh, uh, so they've now enabled LLD is LD, so that the LD command installed by default will be the LLVM one, not the GNU one. A small number of port failures remain, and uh, these will be addressed in the near future. Special thanks to Antoine for handling the X friends over and over and over again, and uh, Cryon at for investigating many port failures and adding the LLD unsafe flag to those so that it will get GNU Linker to link them with, or other fixes or workarounds, and also to everyone who helped investigate, fix, and tag uh, different ports.
0: Yeah. So thank you, that was a big effort and making us uh, one step closer to a uh, GPL-free toolchain in the base system. So next up is uh, a blog post by Michael W. Lucas uh, about author discoverability, which ties nicely into the BSD CAN, uh, which he... And we were, and 200, uh, how many? (laughs) 77 other people. people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he writes, I'm at BSD Can, so it's a great time to talk about the discoverability aspect of being a writer. My goal is to make a living as a writer for the rest of my life. My literary craftsmanship affects that, but it's not the biggest factor. When you read a book, a couple things can happen. You might get quit reading partway through and forget about it. You might read the book, take what you need, and move on. Or if the author twiddles your brain just right, you will track down everything else the author has written and buy it all. As a matter of craft, I need to improve my writing so that it's more likely that people who happen to encounter my books experience that addictive dopamine rush. Uh, But as a business, that's inefficient. Business can grow, stagnate, or wither. I can scrape on my stagnation, but eventually my current readers will die and my business will wither. Yes, yes, debt readers are a tragedy and I will mourn each and every one of you. But more importantly, they'll interfere with paying my mortgage. So, So I need to grow my business, which means expanding my readership. Growth means exposing my work to new readers. Every reader exposed to my text risks experiencing the dopamine rush and suffering addiction. This is called advertising. I appreciate all the folks who tell others about my work. Frankly, a person's word to a friend is the most powerful advertising you can have. But in some ways I've reached uh, market saturation. So if you run a BSD, if you've been exposed to my books, if you watch BSD now, that's this one podcast that you might've heard about, uh, you know who I am. I'm grateful that Alan and Benedict admit that I exist. Well, yeah, we had good time last week. So, uh, and yeah, you write good books, Michael. Um, Parts of the non-BSD world know I exist. Every time Julia Evans says something nice about me, I get a sales search. Nixcraft supports my work with reviews and public statements. These folks help pay my bills. So I know my work can generate appeal beyond my core BSD crowd. I'm not looking for other podcasts to appear on for both fiction and nonfiction. Actually, Michael Lucas asked us um, whether we could do another interview with him. So we'll make uh, that of work course. in the future. Yeah. So he'll be on IT in the D on July 30th. A couple of other podcasts are in discussion. So we should look out for that. Ideally, though, a book sells itself. A book generates buzz. One book that hits drags in many new readers. I've hit a viral hit in the last 12 months a book brought in more readers than any podcast I've been on. That book is, of course, Savaged by System D. Uh, When something works, do it again, but differently. Maybe as a dystopia rather than satire, and with blockchain instead of System D. Uh, Yeah, so there is uh, Bedazzled by Blockchain now. I saw the book at the conference. Uh, In unrelated news, I'm a bad person, and I should feel bad. Okay, yeah, so definitely spread the word about um, authors you like, and if uh, one is Michael W. Lucas, you might as well, um, yeah, recommend that twice to two people. <laughs> okay, um, next up is Pledge and Unveil in OpenBSD. That's a PDF here. That seems like… This a, is oh. a
1: slides, uh from Bob's talk at BSDGAM.
0: Ah, that's… I haven't seen that yet. Okay good to, uh, to have that already available. So you can see what the talk was all about. Of course, the audio will come later uh, if you missing do, a couple yeah. of pieces. But um, for the text, that should get you at least an idea what's this all about. And if this is something... So I think
1: now is a great time to mention we've been talking about BSD Can all episode here and you're probably really sad if you missed it uh, and regretting that. So now is the <laughs> right time uh, to finish up your submission for EuroBSDCon in uh, Bucharest, Romania, in September. um, Four days left, yeah. The 20th to the 23rd. Uh, And yes, you have until Sunday, uh, so that's June 17th, to submit your proposal to be one of the speakers or tutorial givers uh, at EuroBSDCon.
0: Yes, uh, don't miss out on our
1: oh, Presentations are expected to be 45 minutes and delivered in English. Tutorials are expected to be two and a half to three hours or a full day uh, with five to six hours and also in English. Um, if you head over to the registration.eurobsdcon.org site, uh, you can uh, enter your uh, submission. Uh, just need a short, concise text description of what you're going to talk about like a hundred words, it's not demanding at all. Um, And also, you know, a short bit about you and uh, why you, why we would want you as a speaker and, you know, what makes you a good uh, authority on the topic you're going to speak about. And lastly, an estimate of your travel expenses uh, because the conference will take care of travel expenses uh, and lodging expenses for you to come speak at the conference.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's, one more reason to you to submit something, to get there. And another um, possibility for you to get there is by applying to the Paul Schenkeveld uh, Travel Grant um, for Eurobeast.com. If if you would like to just attend the
1: conference, uh, but are not financially able to, um, if you're a good candidate, you can apply for the Paul Schenkeveld Memorial Travel Grant. Uh, Submissions are due by June 15th, you actually have a bit less time for that one. Uh, You need to get that in by Friday uh, and they will pick uh, the most deserving candidate uh, and uh, make sure they get to the conference. So that covers uh, the, the entrance into the conference, the lodging and the travel.
0: Yeah, you don't have to speak if you don't want to, but at least you get into the BSD space and see what the conference is like. All right, um, I've, I've so a couple of people approached me at BSD can. Hey, Benedict, and I was like, who are you? Uh, well, I know you from BSD now. Well, of course, but you, I don't know you. So they introduced themselves and I asked them, what's your favorite part of the show? And at least a couple of them said the feedback and questions section. But before we go into that one, we uh, should present a sponsor for that part, which is Tarsnap, of course. Head over to Tarsnap.com to get your online backups for the Truly Paranoid setup if you haven't done that already.
1: Yep, uh, Tarsnap again sponsored the FreeBSD Developer Summit, uh, paying for the nice t-shirts that we all got.
0: Yep, Uh, uh, on the backside here. (laughs) Uh,
1: So yes, uh, you definitely need your backups, and so you should do them securely. And if you want to do them securely, the only good solution for that is Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now and sign up. Uh, It only costs 25 cents per gigabyte um, per month, and you get to store your backups in a way that they are 100% safe. Uh, They're encrypted on your machine um, before they're sent to the cloud, and only you have the key. As long as you protect that key, you will be the only person able to decrypt them.
0: Yes, and they're deduplicated. So between the archives, there will be deduplication happening. So you don't have to upload. Let's say you have a 17 gigabytes of uh, TarSnap backups, which basically comes up to if you divide, if you multiply this by the 25 cents, this is just uh, f- roughly four dollars. And That's so it. you don't you do the first backup, and then you do the second backup with a couple of deltas in between, so you don't have to actually Pay for another 70 gigabytes because right you well, only have the like
1: delta, the two megabytes of data that changed, and then you compress it. So actually, you're paying for 0.8 megabytes of data that changed.
0: Yeah, and you can let TarSnap simulate how much you would have to pay before um, doing all that backup, so you can actually make a better judgment about how big the costs are. You can find examples in their documentation in the getting started and uh, general use case or um, figure out first of all, um, is Tarsnap supported on my operating system? And you should find that in the download section and that should be pretty much cover all the Unixes of this world as well as Mac OS X and Windows subsystem for Linux.
1: Yeah, so in the end, uh, it only takes a couple of minutes to make your backups. It's like sign up, put in $5, uh, download the client, generate a key and do a backup. Um, It's so fast, we'll just stop here and wait until you're finished, and then you come back and tell us, and then we'll, we'll do the rest of the show. Dum, dum, dum. I, I see you not doing it yet. You should do it. Yeah, yeah. You can just add it, it to back.
0: It'll be done. Yeah. Anyway, on to the feedback. Yeah, so the first one is from Casey uh, about ZFS on DigitalOcean. That goes, hi, I love the show. I have run a droplet on DigitalOcean before, but wanted to use ZFS. Since that is not available by default for the base system, I decided that I would uh, just get some block storage and use ZFS on that so I can use IOCage to run some jails on my droplet. I found it hard to figure out how to do that and could not find any guide to help. Do you know of a good guide to use to help me with that?
1: Um, First of all, um, I don't know how long ago you created your droplet, but you can create uh, ZFS-based system droplets on FreeBSD for at least the last nine months, and probably yeah. more than that. So, um, when you create a new droplet, when you select FreeBSD uh, instead of Linux in the uh, web interface, there's a drop down and lets you pick the version of FreeBSD, and you'll see 11.1, and then below that, 11.1 ZFS and that will actually do a default all ZFS system for you. So uh, ZFS on the base system is actually, takes exactly the same amount of time as doing it on UFS. It's just clicking the slightly different version number. Uh, For the block storage, after you attach the block storage device to your droplet, it'll just show up as an extra device, like DA0 or something, uh, and then you just create a pool the same way you would with a real disk. FreeBSD.org slash handbook and check out the zfs chapter but basically zpool create whatever you want to call your pool and then the name of the device like da zero or whatever that has uh the block storage and you'll have a pool it's that easy yep so as you alan said love the easy west it's you? available yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well yeah that's that's uh pretty straightforward um, next question is from Jürgen um, with uh, a question. Well, easy, but hi, Alan and Chris. Ah, that seems like an old one, but I can uh, <laughs> I can take that still. Uh, first of all, thanks for the great show. I enjoy it every week. Uh, I was just confused by Alan's concluding words about his conference workflow using Git slash SVN on ZFS. Uh, he said, uh, if you use Git, you definitely want to use snapshots so you can undo things. I'm sure he meant SVN. Git never mutates existing objects, the tree that commits the blobs, and if you, if you change your local history, uh, do a rebase or a reset, you can recover the previous state of the ref using the git reflog. Uh, or ref Yeah.
1: Log. Um, I was talking about git, definitely, uh, and it was more about the stuff that's not actually in the git bit yet. Um, I don't know. It's mostly because I'm pretty new with git, but I've managed to make terrible messes that have involved me just RMRFing the entire git thing, getting a new one, and doing it again. Uh, whereas snapshots let me save a bit of that pain there. Yeah, uh, A bunch of git commands just don't do what I expect them to do and cause me headache. Uh, but, you know, I snapshot everything all the time, uh, so I can undo a problem whether it's with SVN or git. It's very nice.
0: Yeah, if you use that um, you have basically the file system as your uh, version control system.
1: Well, as a backup version control from my version control <laughs> system, but yeah.
0: Yeah, keeping it in the, uh, on ZFS uh, makes it uh, more robust and safe. All right. Um, hope that answered the question. Uh, next up is Kevin with a failover best practice Uh question, I guess. A big fan of the show, he writes, I want to run a web server with failover or load balancing particularly, so I can take one node offline for updates and the other will continue to serve traffic. I don't want to be tied to one VPS provider or operating system. I currently have OpenBSD 6.3 on Vulture and Fedora 28 on DigitalOcean. Can this be done at the DNS level? What's the difference between round-robin DNS and anycast DNS and what is a good primary or secondary DNS provider who supports these and DNSSEC?
1: Okay. Um, so, that's so interesting. Doing it across providers is a bit more difficult. You have to do it in DNS and the slight issue with DNS is it's never going to be as fast as you wish. Right? With CARP, you can fail over to a different machine in milliseconds. Uh, with DNS, you're talking probably minutes. You can get it to single digit minutes, but it's still going to be minutes. So yeah, propagation. If it's is going still... down for planned maintenance, that's not so bad. You can switch the traffic over, wait, and then take down the machine once the traffic is switched over. Uh, for unplanned things, it does mean there is uh, some period where things are down. Um, but anyway, um, yes. Uh, at Scale Engine, we do this at the DNS level a little more for load balancing than for failover, but for both. Um, so the problem with the round-robin DNS is that you just tell the client, here's a list of IP addresses. And generally, the DNS resolver library that's part of the operating system returns just one value to the application. So your browser sees... The one IP, it doesn't have all of them, so the browser can't be smart and be like, "Oh, the first one didn't work. Let me try the second one," because it doesn't know that level of detail. The kind of the DNS API kind of hides it from that, hides that from the app. Um, so round robin is probably not what you want. You would uh, need a DNS server, where either using something like dynamic updates or something to change the records, or a DNS server that actually knows how to do this, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, Anycast DNS is slightly different. The idea there is, while you list one or more name servers for the domain, that name server actually exists in multiple different locations in the world, uh, but all with the same IP address. And the traffic is routed to whichever one is closest. So with Anycast DNS, uh, you know, you could have a DNS server in California and one in New York that have the same IP address. And then any traffic coming from a user uh, will go whichever one is the fewest hops away, uh, and the traffic in that one will answer. Um, So different users will get a talk to a different name server while all sending packets to the same IP address. That's how Anycast works. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Anycast is kind of a a feature to make DNS faster, but it's not actually really related to what we're talking about here, uh, which is failover. Although Mm -hmm. it can be used for a bit of that in that you know you can have the server in new york always return uh you know your say your digital ocean droplet in new york uh and the server in california always return the ip of your voltor server that's in california somewhere or whatever so um for doing this yourself uh the open source software i use is called gdnsd uh and it can do things like check the website and make sure it's returning 200 uh in the DNS server, and if it's not, it knows the second IP address for your backup web server and actually changes the DNS record. Uh, So it can actually monitor, basically you set up a round robin, but tell it only return IPs that are up. So it will automatically remove any server that's down from the round robin results it gives out and so on. Um, For a provider that does that, um, before GDNSD existed, and before I was using it, uh, I did simple failover with uh, dnsmadeeasy.com, uh, which is a big Anycast DNS hosting company, uh, and they have support for this failover feature. I'm not sure about their support for DNSSEC off the top of my head, though. Uh, I had a very similar question uh, from another FreeBSD developer a couple of weeks ago. I might ask uh, Ryan um, uh if he ended up finding a provider
0: and pass that along to you. hmm uh-huh. Okay, uh, that should give you a couple of pointers to uh, failover solutions. Um, I'm going to read the next one uh, from Dennis. That's a bit longer. Uh, that goes. Thank you, uh, by the way, for a really great show. It is one show of a very few actual substantial technical content for developers and administrators. I've been watching and listening for a few for years by now. Uh, I hope you are as entertained as your audience must surely be. Yeah, we have fun. <laughs> so, um, he's looking forward to each new episode every week when bicycling forth and back to my work here in the States, in Denmark, in Scandinavia, on top of that little peninsula, on top of Germany, guarding the sea entry to the Baltic Sea. Wait, pardon me. The same country where alumni FreeBSD developers Paul Henningkamp and Urban Lansing are living at the moment. Yeah, they're um, there. Actually, Paul Henningkamp actively committed something
1: recently. So, maybe he's not that alumni.
0: Yeah, but Irvin is. I took his uh, seat at the foundation. Uh, and he gave his pit in. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Well, maybe he's coming back one day. So, that's still a possibility. So, um, have you seen this article by Percona, one of the important companies in the MySQL MariaDB ecosystem, mostly known for their solid online backup system for MySQL and MariaDB and other tools? So, there's a link here.
1: Yeah. That's um,
0: ZFS. I think so, we covered that yes, one. I've been aware one,
1: of Percona for a while because I actually used their fork of MySQL before MarioDB. I actually ran the uh, the Percona fork uh, before MariaDB basically gained most of those features. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway,
0: you can go ahead. Uh, one yeah, thing I will note is so that this article bits.
1: is from November of last year.
0: Yeah, so um, the extract here is that uh, Tasty Bits backups of roughly 400 gigabyte databases from almost Im- possible to a few seconds. With ZFS, we can safely disable InnoDB checksums. So it seems rather a good overview, he writes, uh, of ZFS for database use, but I'll leave that judgment to Alan. Uh, There are some additional links at the bottom of the article, expanding to a series of articles. Um, And oh, a third thing, I tried in vain to use the contact form on Jupyter Broadcasting website, but the submit button is actually missing in a Safari browser on the iPhone. Okay, I had to wait until getting home to a real computer to submit this. Oh, um,
1: you can always email feedback at bsdnow.tv directly as well. Yeah. Um, so about the Percona article. Yes, so they were talking a bit about how ZFS can make you be able to do backups a lot better. Uh, basically, because you can snapshot it, replicate it, then replicate, do an incremental replication to catch up for, you know, it may have taken days to do the backup. Um once you get the delta very low, you can lock the database, take another snapshot, then unlock it, um, and finish the, the last incremental and, and be able to bring up a, uh, an extra replica of that database very, very quickly without any downtime compared to the traditional tools. Um, they also have had articles about performance analysis they've done of ZFS versus XFS. In the first one, they found ZFS to be quite a bit slower, Uh, But in the second one, they found uh, where they were doing things not quite in a way that didn't align very well with ZFS. And by making a couple of minor changes, suddenly uh, they managed to get almost double the performance out of ZFS compared to XFS. You know, ZFS is doing more work than other file systems, so it's expected to be a bit slower. But if you uh, align things quite right, you can take advantage of some of the advanced features of ZFS, like the compression... Uh, the compressed arc, and just the better caching um, to actually get even better performance.
0: Yep, that should be uh, your backup way of using that more efficiently.
1: Yes, uh, but I'm I'm glad to see the Percona people uh, talking more about ZFS, including actually presenting at the ZFS user conference in April. Uh, so there's video of that uh and we covered it in a recent episode but you can get the videos from zfs.datto.com d-a-t-t-o
0: yeah in case you want to run similar setups or uh, see how much performance you can get out of that okay uh thanks for your feedback and uh, questions this week uh we kind of reached the episode end for this week. Remember, next week we'll cover the BSD Can uh, actual conference. Uh, but in the meantime, send us questions, comments. Maybe you've been a first-timer to the conference or a recurrent uh, visitor and you have your own views about the conference, how things went. Uh, let us know at feedback at TV or anything else you found on the internet. Um, we'll cover it in a future episode then.
1: Uh, We look forward to seeing you next week. We will have even more stuff about BSD CAN and more answers to your questions and uh, whatever else you send us to talk about. So email us at feedback at bsdnow.tv and tell us what you'd like to hear more of. You know, we do the show for you, so it might as well be about the
0: things you want it to be about. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you want to see and hear the things you care about.